Welcome back to another talk podcast. We'll be following the order of daily prayer for noon, found on page 296 in the Lutheran service book. Let us begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory, Glory be to, to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as, as it was in the beginning, is now, and, and will be forever. forever. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, this week we pick up, uh, finishing up 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right at the end of St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And it's kind of part two of the discussion that Paul's having with the Corinthians about the resurrection, right? What's going on? Uh, what does the resurrection uh, mean? Obviously, what does it mean for Christ? And then what does it mean for the people of God? And so we pick up in verse 21 of chapter 15, and we go to 26, and then we skip a few verses and then jump to 30 through 42. Um, and again, that's the context, the resurrection talk. So let's just jump right into it. And let's read uh, Paul verses 21 to 26, please. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay. So, in this uh, first little section, let's kind of go verse by verse here. So, uh, verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Um, that is a, a phrase that Paul uses in, in multiple letters, uh, you know, phrased differently in each one, but he references this idea, right, that obviously death came through one man, that man being Adam, uh, but also now life comes through one man, namely the God-man, right, Jesus Christ, who defeated death and rose, and so now the resurrection of the dead is, is for people, right, for his people. Um, we get this in John's Gospel, too, where Jesus even says in uh, chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Um, this is a classic uh, funeral text, right, that we use um, because it is of that joyous reality of the people of Christ that Christ is the resurrection and the life. And now because of that, those who believe in him also uh, get those fruits, get those realities. Um, so, coming back to our text for today, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Um, one interesting thing here, remember that when we read this, when we see all, it's easy to kind of fall into that notion of, oh, he's talking about everybody. But remember that he's talking to the, what, baptized believers of the church. So when he's saying all, yes, all die, and all will be made alive, but the alive is different for those who believe in Christ and those who don't, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, all have died, and all will be made alive. And see, that's, and we'll come to this kind of at the end of our reading too, that yes, even those who are destined to hell, right, uh, because of unbelief, it's not like they will just perish. They will get their bodies back, but they will be cast into the everlasting fire with that. So all are made alive, but what it means to be alive is different for those who believe in Christ and those who don't, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I had never thought about it in those terms. It's, mm -hmm. it's uh, that it certainly applies to both, even if, as you say, they will not be saved, they, they will be made alive. Right. And uh, so, yeah, it just it gives us a different way to think about it and, and 
um, kind of adds a little bit more to the sentence, right? Um, in verse 23, though, he says, St. Paul says, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, right, who are going to rise to that new life. Um, obviously, Christ the first fruits, uh, the context of that uh, word, first fruits, if we can think back to the Old Testament, right, whenever there would be a crop or a harvest that was done, well, the earliest portion of that harvest would be what? Sacrificed, mm -hmm. right, to God, uh, giving thanks for everything that God has given in the full harvest, kind of like our tithe, right, or the tithe in the Old Testament, what we do today, uh, giving the first of everything that God gives us in thanksgiving for everything that God gives us. And so Christ is that first fruits because he is the first one who resurrected from the dead, right? Who defeated death and rose from the grave. And then Christ being that first fruits, the one who, you know, is the first to do this, then all of those same things come to the people that belong to him on the last day, right? They will raise to new life in the same manner as Christ did. Um, Verse 24, then comes the end, St. Paul says, when he delivers, and the he there is referring to Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Um, that is al always a, a good thing to remember, uh, especially as we live in this temporal life and we are under, what, authority and power every day in multiple contexts, right? Um, and especially, you know, in the United States, we are um, blessed to have less tyranny <laughs> than the rest of the world, but to always remember that, yes, temporally speaking, we are under the thumb of earthly rulers, but we are constantly always under the rule and authority of Christ who reigns over everything. And on that last day, he will, what, destroy every rule and every authority and every power as he delivers the kingdom in its perfection, in its uh, glory, back to God the Father, right? As God the Father created uh, the world in its beauty, and yes, we're corrupted by sin and everything is decaying, well, Christ renews, uh, brings back new, and perfects, and then delivers that perfect kingdom back to God the Father as the new creation is brought in, right? And the, the beauty of the new life begins in Christ. Um, what occurs to me here is that, that he kind of lays out a very clear um, picture of the end times. And I think sometimes there's, a, there's, there's groups that they add all these extra details that mm -hmm. they're just kind of reading into the text that really isn't there. Well, and they borrow passages from, from Revelation yeah, and whatnot yeah. and talk about millennialism and all these things. And, but this is just so very clear here, the way Paul lays it out, the way it's going to unfold. Yeah, I mean, it's even, you know, as Jesus unfolds it in the Gospels, how simple it is where Christ descends back right through the clouds and then all are raised and brought to the judgment seat and it's the angels separate and then the new creation is brought in, you know, um, not much more difficult or <laughs> no, complex it's, it's to think. very straightforward yeah. and very clear. Yeah, we should all just... Uh... Uh, open our ears to that yeah. rather than trying to insert things that aren't there. Right, because when we insert the things that aren't there, what does it cause but tribulation and doubt and worry, whereas the simplicity of what it truly is brings peace, mm -hmm. right? There, we have nothing to worry about or to be um, hesitant about on the last day because we know we are in Christ, and as we stand before the judge, well, we will be acquitted, right, because of the blood of Christ. And so let the Lord deal with all the details, right? We exactly. know <laughs> we know what's going to be our loss, and thanks be to God for that. Um, but it, again, it's, it's beautiful to just have that in mind. Um, and, and flowing into verse 25, therefore, he, again, that is Jesus, uh, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Um, and the, the background for that, you know, in the Old Testament, it speaks about that too. Um, in Daniel chapter seven, um, it says, and to him, uh, talking about Jesus here, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
So again, while the earthly temporal kingdoms are you know, in our visual sight, we know that what we can't see is the eternal kingdom uh, that Christ is reigning over, that is, is from the beginning, right, as he is in control of everything even now, um, and then will be again brought to perfection on the last day. And his kingdom is one that, what, does not get destroyed, but is, is truly everlasting. While the kingdoms of this world tumble, right, both in this temporal life and at the end for, for good, uh, the eternal kingdom of Christ uh, never ends, right? And is never, never taken away. Um, so when he gets to verse 26 and says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, mm -hmm. he's not talking about his death. He's talking about the death of of everyone else in the world. I mean, yeah. so that's part mm -hmm. of this staging idea that, well, his his uh, first victory or the first fruits was mm -hmm. his rex resurrection. Yeah. And then the ultimate uh, um, destruction or, or demonstration of his authority and power is his victory over all death. Right. Yeah, yeah so exactly. Because if you were to read that and, and, and say, well, if death is destroyed, why am I still dying, right? Well, it, right. Christ or, 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 or he, he conquered death. So yeah. what's, what's left to be done? Yeah. Right, right, right. So it's been conquered, but it will be destroyed, right? Eternally forever, never to die again. Once he comes again and, and puts an end to death for good. Um, and so that's again, the hope that we have, um, as we realize that what death, uh, for us actually is, and as he will talk about later, right, this idea of sowing and seed and beautiful things that come from the seed that dies. Um, death, even for us, is already destroyed. Yes, we have to go through it. We have to experience death, but it doesn't lead to something that is detrimental to us, but it leads to goodness, right, that God has to give. Right. There's um, a passage that says, for me to die is gain. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, yep. Yeah, from Paul. Yes. Paul. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Where I don't remember, but I you know, <laughs> it's Paul. Yep. Um, and, I, you know, kind of going along with this verse, um, I, I looked up some Old Testament verses. So Hosea and Isaiah uh, talk about this idea. Uh, in Hosea, it says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Um, you know, that sounds mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. what we say again in the funeral rite, O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? Um, and then Isaiah saying that death will be swallowed up forever and the Lord will wipe away every tear from the faces of his people. Um, which again, beautiful phraseology that we use, right? In the funeral service, these uh, declarative realities of what death is and means to the Christian, the one who is in Christ. Um, it's not not an end, uh, but a beginning. And one thing, just kind of talking about death in general, it's always interesting to think about uh, when people use the phrase, uh, the phrase, the phrase, heaven is my home, right? Um, yes, right, when we die, we gain eternal life in heaven, but it's not this um, unknowable, weird, random space of heaven, but on the last day, what does he come to do but restore the new earth and the new heaven, the new creation? Um, so it's heaven is not our home. Our home is the new creation, right, that, we'll, that he will make on the last day. That's so our you true would home. maybe rephrase it as maybe heaven is our waiting room. Yeah, yeah, creation. right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, it, it's, it's odd to think about it truly because I don't think that we talk about the new creation enough with our people to help them to understand you know, that there, there will be animals, there will be, you know, life, because it's a full new creation, right? It's not just um, I'm floating around as a spirit with other spirits in some heavenly realm, you know. Um, I think you're very right about that. And, and it's just our, our common social notion of that, that once, once we are no longer alive, you're in heaven or, in your, in, or hell, yeah. and that's it. Mm -hmm. End of story. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and even worse than that, that's the understanding, but then you have the Christian groups who deny the resurrection of the body, right? And so that even uh, adds to it more that it's just, yes, life after death, but what does that life consist of, 
uh, an unbiblical idea of mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. it actually says, right, that life will be. Um, so these are all, again, as we, as we read through this understanding, as Paul is talking to the Corinthians, trying to get them to see uh, these beautiful realities, they are to bring us peace. They are to bring us um, joy. And, and as much as I'm going to say this and people won't like it, us to look forward to death. You know, as, as you even said, quoting Paul, um, that's why we as Christians can not be afraid to die of ourselves, but also not worrying about our loved ones once we die, because we know that the one who has control of our life in death also has control of our life in life, right? Right in this life. So we don't, we shall not worry that he will uh, forsake or not take care of our loved ones when we when we do die. And some of the, some of that is a, a function where we are uh, in this time and place, because um, if you go back to previous centuries when when life expectancy was mm -hmm. so much shorter and there were plagues and wars and and uh, you know if you, if you reached a ripe old age of maybe 40 or yeah. 50 you were doing really well right. well now we have the <laughs> expectation well we're we all going to live till till 70 or 80. yeah sure. yeah right um not necessarily true but but we, we have that expectation so i think we we perceive that death is not as immediate as 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 those generations did right right but it's so it's so funny that um, because we, you know, our, our minds are so engulfed in this temporal understanding of time that even going from 40 to 70 years, yes, it's almost a doubling, but in compared to eternity, it's like, right. you know, the, it, it's always a blip. A blink, so, of, a blink it, of an eye. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I don't know, just again, it, it's so good to talk about these things to kind of help us all pull ourselves out of the, the hole that we kind of get ingrained in, right, in our thinking, and get us to think about what it, what it truly means. Um, and with God being in control of everything, um, it's not just a, a cute phrase, but stop and actually contemplate what that means in all aspects of your life. And uh, that brings peace and joy too, right? Okay. So now Paul kind of finishes this, this explicit talking about what it means as death coming into the world, but now resurrection and new life coming in Christ. And he kind of, in this next little section, starting at verse 30, starts to talk about um, more applicative to the Corinthian people specifically, um, and then also talking about some things in his life, uh, referring and reflecting on what the resurrection of Christ actually means in his ministry, right? Mm -hmm. Why is he doing the things that he's doing? Um, and kind of reiterating what we heard in last week's epistle reading, you know, if Christ had not been raised from the dead, then our faith is futile, right? It means nothing. So the very fact that Paul is preaching and teaching and suffering, as he will say in the next few verses, well, he's doing it because he knows that Christ actually resurrected, right? He believes it wholeheartedly. Why would he put himself through these toils if he thought it was a joke, right? Or it, was, it wasn't real, or these realities coming forth from Christ's resurrection weren't real for Christ's people. So. Uh, Paul, if we could read verses 30 through 34, please. This is interesting because yeah. when I first read this, I thought, well, he, he's talking about the resurrection, but then he kind of takes a left turn here and starts mm -hmm. talking about bad morals and, and, and things. <laughs> so, it, I, yeah, it's, um, it'll be interesting to kind of uh, figure out why he, why he took this mm -hmm. little excursus to, you know, to make that point. Right. Um, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Yeah. So, again... Like you're saying, he he takes this this left turn, right? And well, all of a sudden, it sounds like he's uh, you know just throwing out a lot of aphorisms, you know, like Ben Franklin would or something, <laughs> you know. Uh, like, and it just it just seems like an odd insertion at this point to me. Yeah. Well, he so he's he's going um, from again talking very broadly about what Christ's resurrection means for people to then saying 
the analysis of, hey, Corinthians, what are you doing, right? How are you living your life? Are you living as if the resurrection is real or not? And then he goes on to, you know, harp on them a little bit and, and pull out their sin and make them feel guilty about the fact that, well, they're, they're not, you know, and, and kind of reorient their, their frame of reference to understand again what it means to live now with that resurrection hope. So he starts in verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? Well, it's kind of a, a rhetorical question. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the answer simply is, why are they in danger every hour? Well, because as one who holds the message of Christ, as one who goes out to preach and to teach the message that is contrary to the world, right, and is contrary to uh, especially Greco-Roman understanding of life, um, they are in danger every hour, not only from people within the church, but everywhere they are being persecuted, right, for the faith that they have in Christ. Um, And so he goes on to say in verse 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I die every day. And uh, remember Paul saying in other places that he bears the marks of Christ, right? That he uh, is fighting every day. And you can see his, his wounds, his battle scars for uh, going out and proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Every day he dies as he takes the brunt of what criticism, um, the realities of church people falling away as he's writing these letters and seeing the church fall apart in shambles. And then again, the actual authorities. Remember, he's writing this this Mm -hmm. letter to them while in prison in Rome. So here he is bearing the marks of Christ, uh, suffering, being persecuted in prison, um, telling them, hey, because of Christ, I die every day. I suffer every day. Um, But then he says in verse 32, but what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So he's saying here, again, fighting with the beasts at Ephesus, he's not literally talking about animals, right? It's a figure of speech. The beast meaning the people at Ephesus that he was fighting with. Uh, Remember that the church in Ephesus, Paul spent almost three full years with them. So that is the longest amount of time that he spent with any of these single congregations. Um, He had a lot of work to do with them as they were very divided uh, over the Jew and Gentile uh, problem, right? They were not united or or, um, on the same page. And so Paul had to spend a lot of time with them, kind of getting them back into the uh, Christian understanding. And then even after he left, he sent Timothy to them to spend some time uh, because they needed some uh, more reproach and more correction. And then, uh, according to church tradition, even John spent uh, quite a few years in Ephesus towards the end of his ministry. Uh, so, you know, just a reminder that he's saying, I spent all of this energy um, fighting with you, making mm-hmm. sure you knew the truth. Um, and again, why would I do this? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, meaning let's enjoy life. Who cares about tomorrow? Why would I take the time to fight with you? Why would I take the time to care about you in that sense? Let's just live life, enjoy it, because this is all we have. Well, but he's saying, obviously, I don't do that because this is not all we have, right? There is more to life, uh, and especially in regard to, again, the resurrection to eternal life. So um, when he's using this example, too, of let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, well, he's using that explicit example because, well, some of the people in Corinth are doing that, right, in the church. They're living this, um, oh, I can't believe I'm even going to say this, this YOLO lifestyle. You remember that? <laughs> right? You only live once, so live it up each day. Um, you know, they're living like that, uh, which is funny because in one sense, Living for today is what we're called to do, right? Because Mm -hmm. we can be taken any day, but how do we live, right? That's the difference. Are we living out the Christian faith as we live with that mentality, or are we living for the hedonism, the pleasures of our own life, right? Um, 
So uh, yeah, any any comments or thoughts there? Well, yeah, we're living according to our salvation. Yeah, and, but when I read the you know that remark about let us eat and drink, it, it just sounds like it's something something out of Shakespeare or something. You yeah, know, that, yeah, that, yeah, exactly. That, you know, a, a, a life philosophy. Yep. You know that you yep. would. Uh, uh, perhaps embrace yeah uh, but yeah he's coming down pretty hard on these people you know like uh in essence kind of saying i'm not, I'm not beating my head against a wall here this is mm -hmm. this is all very important yeah absolutely and and the wonderful thing about reading through the writings of paul is you know remember he is a very educated man one skilled in both uh jewish writing but also greek writing right uh greek um style of writing and the rhetoric and all and logic uh, so when he's writing to them, he's using these rhetorical, uh, logical ways of thinking and, and ways of writing to kind of catch them in their own, you know, their own um, world of how they think of things. Um, so he goes on to say then uh, with verse 33, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Again, the church in Corinth uh, they are going around with their hedonistic, paganistic friends, and what is it doing to them? But it's making them fall back into their old ways, and uh, all the good morals, as he likes to say, all the truths that they were taught from Paul of Christ, well, they're being ruined, right? They're kind of falling to the wayside because the bad company of the uh, Greco-Roman world around them is, is encapsulating them again. Um, so he's telling them in verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning, right? Wake up, stop the sin. Uh, literally, drunkenness was a problem in Corinth. So he's, he's giving them a, a, a full application, right? Relevant to their situation. Uh, as he says in other places, and as it's, it says in the gospels, uh, what does drunkenness prevent? But drunkenness prevents you from wisdom and knowledge and understanding because it keeps you, as it says, in this stupor where you can't think through things or understand things properly, right? Does he, does he mention Ephesus just because he's kind of trying to draw a moral comparison between Corinth and Ephesus as if... Um, if you're not careful, you could you could end up as yeah. bad as the as the people in Ephesus. Right, I think that that's definitely a piece piece of it. Right, when he calls them beasts at Ephesus, right. he is right. he is. And, and and if and if you continue in this way, yeah, this is you, right? right? And and the fact that um, he had to write a second letter to them mm -hmm. quickly after, you know, shows you that they were falling into those same traps. Um, so yeah, that is definitely a warning to them. Hey, you know these people, don't look, be like them. Yeah, look yeah. what happened. Look yeah. what happened. Um, so finishing up that verse 34, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. So again, uh, knowledge of God um, is going to be important when understanding that they don't have knowledge because they are throwing away that knowledge by their lifestyle, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're kind of negating it all. And he says it harshly. I say this to your shame, right? He's calling them out, like mm -hmm. you're saying. Oh, he's 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 not uh, holding back. Yeah, no, he he's making it absolutely clear. Hey, your actions are shameful. Um, the way you're thinking is shameful, and the way you're thinking is defaming and defying the truth that you claim to believe about what it means to be part of Christ and one who has conquered death, and now those fruits come to you. You're not living that way. You're living the exact opposite way. So wake up um, and turn your shame into faith again and, and belief. So, all right. So let's let's finish up um, this last section. So Paul, if you could read uh, 35 to 42 to finish it out. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. 
and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, starting back at verse 35, in this whole section, Paul is going to give kind of three examples from God's created order to illuminate the principle of resurrection to the Corinthians. Um, and so the, the three examples, he uses the kernel, right, the seed as one idea. Then he talks about the flesh, so animals versus humans versus birds versus fish. And then the third uh, thing from creation that he uses as an idea of the resurrection is the celestial bodies, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, and the point with that is all are unique. So when we talk about the resurrection, how were we raised? Well, first of all, we can't be raised until we die, until we're sown, right? As, as we put seed into the ground, right? And it produces new life. Well, so are we. Our bodies are, are put into the ground, sown into the ground, if you will. And we die, right? And from that death then comes life. And so um, that life, though, looks unique and yet different. I'm sorry, unique and yet the same for all, all people. It's the same in the sense of we all raise to glorified bodies, right? Mm -hmm. But it's unique that we don't all look the same. And that's what his, again, three examples are. Yes, we all... Um, are sown into the ground, we all die, and then those in Christ, as we rise, we're risen to new bodies, and again, we're, we all have the glorified bodies, but we all look different just like we do in this life, right? Um, and I know people always have the question of, well, what am I going to look like when I come back in the resurrection, right? Will it be your young and beautiful self? Right, right. right. And, you know, I, I think pastors go to is you'll be that middle-aged 30, 35, perf perfect of your life, I guess. Or, you know, the balance. I don't know. But we, we don't know. But the, the point is, you know, um, you know, if someone dies as a child, are they going to come back as a, as a child? Are they going to come? We don't, we don't know. All we know is, again, that truth of that we come back in a glorified body and that we are, what, unique. We are given our own body, uh, as it says in 39, for not all flesh is the same, so different kinds of flesh, so therefore we look different, and this is what I'm implying here, that we look different, right, in the resurrection, even though, again, we all have the glorified state, the glorified body. Um, and like one glory is to the sun, another to the moon, so is my glory in the resurrection and your glory in the resurrection. Glorified bodies, yet our glory looks different because we still look different, right? We're still unique in that sense. We're not all one uh, looking creature, if you will. Um, Where I thought you were going to go with this was yeah. is that, that there's some who who've died in the faith, so they're mm -hmm. going to look very different from those who've rejected uh, God's Oh, grace. well, that is an absolute truth too, right? Who knows? Well, okay, so we're not told what kind of uh, manner in which those who don't believe in Christ will look, even though their right. bodies are raised. Right. Do they rise in their, in their decrepit state that they kind of died in? Maybe, because you know what? They're going to the place of unquenchable fire and coal and gnashing of teeth and where the worm is going to eat at their flesh uh, but never be satisfied. So, yeah, who cares what they look like in the sense <laughs> of, you know. Um, yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a great point. Um, and maybe that maybe I'm reading something into this passage that isn't there. Maybe. Well, I, again, I think the the main thrust of here is now Paul is switching again, talking to the believers. So the mm -hmm. context in which he's speaking is mm -hmm. to what the believer will look like uh, and what the reality is for the believer. But I think that we can easily read into this and and ponder right what it's going to mean also for those who don't believe. And maybe they were posing the same question to Paul that that people pose to pastor that, what will I look like? Yeah, absolutely. Just, just to yep. give him something to chew on. Yep, uh, that, yep. You know, yeah. don't know, but it could, could be a variety of different things. Yeah, exactly. And again, I, I like that his answer is 
what it is in the sense of, yes, you're all, and I'm saying it 30th time, all glorified, all made perfect in Christ, but like everything has its own unique beauty now, so it will in the, in the resurrection too, right? Um, now that, that last verse, 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. That, again, is, is the beautiful phrase of just knowing that the flesh in this time, because of sin, is resulting in death, right? Flesh equals death. Uh, therefore, it is perishable. Um, but what is raised is imperishable. The new flesh uh, clothed in Christ is imperishable to never die again, right? So new flesh never to die again, um, as was the objective from the beginning of creation, right? So just like the first creation, the new creation has the same notion. Um, but the beauty is in the new creation, there is no chance to again fall into sin because what Christ has brought the kingdom in its, in its splendor and its glory and its perfection back to the Father. And so in the new creation, again, clothed in him, there is no no possibility for sin, right, to fall into that, it's, but it's full perfection. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll stop there. Um, and I know that the, the hymn that you've chosen for today picks up on this uh, sowing and reaping imagery, right? Um, yes, um, it, it, it does. Um, uh, could you grab a, a Bible from the pews yep. there? Because uh, there's another passage from earlier in Corinthians that, that it, it, um, I think it's worth referring to. Okay. Um, and that is uh, 1 Corinthians 3, um, 6 and 7. Okay. Uh, because he uses uh, analogies of, of, of a seed and planting. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. so if you could read those two verses, 6 and 7. Yep, so Paul says, I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Right, so we're using this uh, seed analogy. It, it, we're, we're applying this metaphor in a different way here. It's kind of like a, a, a spiritual growth. Mm -hmm. So it isn't quite, the, quite uh, the same as it is out of the passage that we have for this coming Sunday, but it's definitely a, a metaphor that he keeps returning to because it, it was a, an agrarian society, mm -hmm. basically, and, and, and people would understand these. Right, yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, and with that, you see it coming up again in multiple places, so to understand that that's right, a key thing that they would hone into quickly and be able to say, oh, I make that connection, right? I understand what, what, he's, what he's getting at, yeah. Um, yeah. Or recently, uh, you know, when we had the, uh, the, the story of the, the, the fishing, Mm -hmm. know, uh, calling the disciples. Yeah. You know, that's something they could relate to, too. Is, oh, uh, yeah, is, yeah. Uh, it was all part of their daily life. Anyway, the, the, uh, the hymn that I had chosen to kind of fit that theme was 921, which is in the, uh, towards the back of the hymnal in a section that they, they label as end of service. And you can see why it would be chosen for the end of the service, because uh, it begins on, on what has now been sown. What's interesting about this hymn is that it's actually a combination of two different hymns. Um, the author, John Newton, uh, had originally written another hymn that was kind of inspired by his uh, perception that uh, as a preacher, he didn't really know what the effect was going to be on, on his listeners. Oh, you know, okay. is, is, yeah. is the message really getting through? So he, you, you have that little bit of doubt, like, yeah, am, is, it, is it taking root, right? Right. And, am and, I changing something yeah. here or, or am I not? So it's kind of a prayer in that regard that um, it's really out of his hands. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's why I wanted to read that passage from Corinthians because, yes, you can plant the seed, but it's up to God to make it, to make it grow. Yeah, absolutely. And the Holy Spirit to, to uh, uh, take effect there. So the first stanza of this hymn comes from this reflection on that, um, on what has now been sown, um, that we... Um, it is God's power. The power is thine alone to make it sprout and grow. It's not ours. And the other two stanzas are from a separate hymn. And they've just been combined into this, into this one that's a good closing hymn for the end of the service. Um, the second stanza, uh, To thee our wants are known, from thee 
by all our powers, accept what is thine own and pardon what is ours. Uh, our praises, Lord, and prayers receive and to thy word a blessing give. It's really just outlining what happens during worship mm -hmm. and, and a very good description of what happens in worship. We receive pardon, we receive, receive forgiveness, we, we offer praise to our creator right. and uh, ask that he uh, listen to our petitions and, and grant us a blessing. And then the third stanza, as is often a, the case with a lot of hymns, is it kind of talks about the here and the hereafter. Um, oh, grant that each of us now met before thee here may meet together thus when thou and thine appear and follow thee to heaven our home in so amen, Lord Jesus, come. Talking about the, the end times. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of hymns end that way. And so it's, it's a very brief hymn, very concise in its, uh, expression uh, of, of what happens in worship and, yep. our, and our thoughts that we want this, what we've heard today, to really take root uh, in us and in our lives. Yeah. So uh, it works very well for that purpose. And good uh, end of service purpose too, right? Like you're mm -hmm. saying, short, concise, wraps it all together and then sends us on our, you know, sends us on our way. Uh, yeah, so, for, for yeah. The, yeah, for the, for those of us who just, yeah, let's wrap this up, let's, <laughs> let's get going. It's, it's an excellent summary yeah, if you want to yeah. look at it that way. As long as we're talking about the author, the author is John Newton. Um, do you recognize the name John Newton from, from other, uh, other hymn texts? It's right now. It's not clicking, but I, should I? <laughs> well, well uh -oh. per, yeah. The author of perhaps the the one of the most famous hymns, Amazing yeah. Grace. Oh, okay, yes, he okay. Is, he is okay. one and one and the same. The so we have five hymns in our our hymnal all together by John Newton. Okay. There's there's this one on what has now been sown. There's Amazing Grace. Um, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. There's there's two other ones that escape me right now. So he's well represented in our in our hymnal. Yes. And what's so fascinating about his history? Do you know anything about his history? I don't know. Um, okay. mm -hmm. um, uh, he um, he had a very devout mother who brought him up in the faith. Okay. But she died when he was only seven years of oh, age. Okay. And so traumatic experience, obviously. And he went to, um, how should we say, he kind of went off the rails at that point, okay. and, and he became a, he, he worked on the sea. Uh, and so, you know, if you think of the culture of, of, of being a, um, you know, working on the sea and, and yeah. um, actually slave boats, eventually oh, he rose okay. to the um, position of being a commander of slave, slave boats. Hmm. And so for a long stretch of his life, it was, he would, he himself regarded it as, as the lowest of the low because he was, you know, hanging out with kind of unsavory people and, okay. and, and engaging in the slave trade. Uh, but throughout yeah. his life, I think this, this seed that was planted by his mother yeah. early in his life kind of kept working on him mm -hmm. and he realized the wrong path that he had taken. And so later in life, um, he, he turned away from that. He actually invested the time and energy. He must have been a very bright man to learn Greek and Hebrew oh, and, wow. study, okay. and study, and he became a pastor. So he had his own conversion experience. He traces it back to a, a near-death experience that he had when he was at sea, that it was a, they were caught in a terrible storm. And uh, uh, he pled, you know, Please save me, yeah, God, yeah. Lord have mercy upon me. And he was saved, he was spared. Mm. Um, and, and whether that conversion experience just kind of accelerated it or that was, it was already growing inside of him is, yeah. you know, I suppose a, a matter of debate. But nevertheless, his life turned around. He realized the, um, the, uh, that he had strayed and, and that his occupation of, of commanding these slave ships was not you know, uh, an honorable one. So yeah, he turned yeah. away from that. And, uh, and yeah, and, and pursued becoming a, a, a priest. What? Oh, a priest. Okay. Yeah. So, so, or, or what, what or denomination? Church, Church of England. Yeah. Well, oh, Church yeah, of England. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yep. Got it. And so, um, uh, Amazing Grace was uh, one of those things that, that, um, uh, grew out of that. Uh, you think of the imagery that's in Amazing Grace is, you know, for um, uh, once was lost, mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 found, and blind, yeah. yeah, blind and wretched state. And, yeah. and those so kinds he's, of So he's reflecting on himself. For absolutely. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. 
And so, um, but this was, this was another one of his hymns um, that was an outgrowth of, of his work. Um, the tune that is paired with this is from a man named John Darwall, and the name of the tune is Darwall's 148th. Well, where does that come from? Uh, his claim to fame is he actually wrote music for all of the songs, 150 oh, okay. of the songs. Okay. And this is the melody that he paired with Psalm 148. We have other examples of that, um, not by Darwall, but the old 100th, yes. uh, Praise God mm -hmm. from Whom All Blessings Flow. That's where that name comes from is because it was the tune that was sung to the 100th Psalm. Okay. Um, and so uh, I think much to his uh, good fortune, if we don't remember Dar Darwall for anything else, his name is attached to this tune, so yeah, we, can't, we yeah. can't forget who, it, who he is. Was he an Englishman too? He was. Okay. Uh, right. um, 18th century was, was when he was also active. Right, right. Um, so it's from that same, same period of time right there. Um, what's interesting about this tune is in one of the early manuscripts, uh, it's changed. Oh. It begins. It begins like this, the way we have it in the hymnal. On what has now been sown? In one of the early manuscripts, the first note comes from above rather than below. Oh. And many have argued that it makes for a better tune, and I would agree with that. On what has now been sown? So rather okay. than starting low, you're kind of starting in the middle. Yeah, um, interesting. And I think it's really unfortunate that it, it, it didn't retain that form because I think it does make for a better melody. So even in Lutheran Book of Worship, it was still this same way. You're talking mm -hmm. way mm -hmm. before, okay. All yeah, right. yeah, right. Yeah. It was from an early manuscript, yeah. not, wow. not an mm. earlier version of our, our hymnal. So- um, Wonder who uh, made that change. <laughs> I wonder, but it, obviously in some of its early uh, appearances when it was first published, um, Darwell um, was also a, a, a pastor, and, mm -hmm. um, uh, but a very talented amateur musician. Okay. And he and uh, William Cooper got together and collected all these hymns and published them together. And in those first publications, this is the form it had. So, um, for some reason, they decided to change yeah. that that opening note. But um, uh, it's just an interesting thing to muse about that what makes for a strong melody and 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 what makes one melody better or easier to sing than mm -hmm. another. Um, so um, because it's brief enough, uh, I propose that we uh, sing all three stanzas of this one. Okay. Uh, one thing that I think is is interesting to note, and maybe you noticed that when I was just reading through the hymn, is this. This particular hymn in the hymnal has retained all the original language, all the these and the thou's uh, yes. and the vows, yep. <laughs> and which can make, I am finding that the older I get mm -hmm. and the farther we get away from that, it's, it's harder for me. They, they become maybe a little bit more like tongue twisters. Okay. And I all have right. to think yep. about what am I saying because mm -hmm. it just isn't quite Does as... Doesn't roll off anymore. It doesn't yeah, roll yeah. off, exactly. But my hunch is, is the reason that they left them in the hymn is because a lot of people perhaps have memorized this with the these and the thys. Yep. And if yep. you change them all to you and yours, that throws um, them off. It throws them <laughs> off and frustrates them. And that and that I have heard many people comment about that. Yep. That that you I memorized it this way. Why did they have to change it? And mm -hmm. it just ends up being a, a an annoying frustration. Right. Right. So let's let's sing it with the uh, the original these and thys. Okay. On what has now been sown, thy blessing, Lord, bestow. The power is thine alone to make it sprout and grow. Do thou in grace the harvest raise, and thou alone shalt have the praise. To thee our wants are known, from thee are all our powers. Accept what is thine own, and pardon what is ours. Our praises, Lord, and prayers receive, and to thy word a blessing give. 
O grant that each of us now met before the year may meet together thus when thou and I appear and follow thee to heaven our home means so amen lord jesus come i should note before we wrap up that this this tune appears three times in our hymnal this this one for our end of service hymn um another a couple pages back for a beginning of service hymn mm -hmm. and then a third time um i think it's a national hymn so it it, it does appear multiple times uh, in the hymnal. It's got kind of an unusual metric scheme, too. It's 666688. Mm, okay. uh, but to me, when you sing it, it doesn't line out that way uh, musically um, um, because you have it at that last line, do thou in grace, which is four syllables. So you think they would have divided it four and 12 yeah. at the end rather than, rather than eight and eight. Mm. But, um, uh, nevertheless, if you find other melodies with that same metrical structure, you could you could swap it out. Right, right. Okay. Very good. Well, thank you. Are we going to be hearing this one on Sunday or no? Yes, we'll we'll do it at the end okay, of the service. There we where, go. Where it belongs. Very good. Okay, we pick up with our service of daily prayer, uh, with the section of prayers. So, O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And before we pray the collect for the word, um, there was a prayer that I came across that kind of related to uh, the epistle reading. So I'm going to read that prayer first. We'll say the amen. Well, just like a, a lot of um, a liturgy of the hours, you have multiple collects. Yeah, so absolutely. We'll just say it's, yep. a, it's an additional collect. Right. So we'll do that, and then we'll go into the collect of the word. So we pray. Victorious Savior, daily put to death my foolish pride and wisdom. Teach me the way of humility and self-sacrifice. In the daily repentance and renewal of baptism, may I partake of your sufferings so that I may partake of your resurrection also. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Blessed Lord, you have caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear, mark, learn, and take them to heart, that by patience and comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.